When I wrote the name of this message earlier this week, I didn't know something. I didn't know that when I woke up this morning, the first thing that would happen was I'd get a message that one of my best friends died. Just unexpectedly, a good friend. Um, I won't tell you who, because some of you know him, and I don't want to upset you. I don't want you guessing either. But uh, I didn't know that. And today I want to talk about, about four kinds of death. It's strange. I want to talk about manslaughter. I want to talk about murder. I want to talk about execution. And I want to talk about the death of the high priest, which is the most significant death of all. But to do that, I've got to, I've got to read a little bit earlier in the Torah section for this week's uh, readings. I'm looking in uh, Numbers chapter 35. Those of you who have Bibles with you, and I'm sure some of you do, because Larry Feldman is your leader, and, uh, and Larry Feldman loves the Bible. So, I'm reading from Numbers 35, beginning in verse 9. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall select cities uh, to be cities of refuge for you, that the manslayer who kills any person without intent may flee there. The city shall be for you a refuge from the avenger, that the manslayer may not die until he stands before the congregation for judgment. And the cities that you shall give to be six cities of refuge, you shall give three cities uh, beyond the Jordan and three cities in the land of Canaan to be cities of refuge. These six cities shall be for refuge for the people of Israel and for the stranger and for the sojourner among them, that anyone who kills any person without intent may flee there. But if he struck him down with an, obj- uh, with an iron object so that he died, he is a murderer, and the murderer shall be put to death. And if he struck him down with a stone tool that could cause death and he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. Or if he struck him with a a wooden tool that could cause death and he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. The avenger of blood shall himself put the murderer to death. When he meets him, he shall put him to death. And if he pushed him out of hatred or hurled something at him, lying in wait so that he died, or if in enmity he struck him down with his hand so that he died, then he who struck the blow shall be put to death. He is a murderer. The avenger of blood shall put the murderer to death. But if he pushed him suddenly without enmity, or hurled anything on him without lying in wait, or if he used a stone that could cause death, and without seeing him dropped it on him so that he died, though he was not his enemy and did not seek his harm, then the congregation shall judge between the manslayer and the avenger of blood in accordance with all these rules. And the congregation shall rescue the manslayer from the hand of the avenger of blood, and the congregation shall restore him to his city of refuge to which he had fled, and he shall live in it until the death of the high priest who was anointed with the holy oil. But if the manslayer shall at any time uh, go beyond the boundaries of his city of refuge to which he fled, and if the avenger of blood finds him outside the boundaries of his city of refuge, and the avenger of blood kills the manslayer, he shall not be guilty of blood. For he, that is the manslayer, 
must remain in his city of refuge until the death of the high priest. But after the death of the high priest, the manslayer may return to the land of his possession. And these things shall be a statute and a rule for you throughout your generations in all your dwelling places. Well, that's quite a bit. Let's take that apart for a moment, okay? Let's deal first of all with a matter of definitions. First, uh, the, uh, the cities of refuge, there were six cities of asylum uh, which a person would go to if he had killed somebody and he would flee to this city uh, while he's awaiting trial. And he'd be safe in that city. Safe from what? He'd be safe from the avengers of blood. What's an avenger of blood? Second definition. First definition, city of refuge. Second definition, avenger of blood. The avenger of blood was a designated relative of the slain person. And he was responsible to take the life of the killer under certain conditions. First of all, if the killer was found outside the city of refuge, somebody kills your brother. Uh, and um, it's not determined whether it's premeditated murder or if it was purely an accident. Somebody in the family becomes the avenger of blood. Their responsibility is not simply to even the score, but to, to expunge or, uh, the, uh, the blood of the innocent from the ground. See, the idea in Jewish thought was that when innocent blood is shed, it defiles the land and it brings judgment from God. So if innocent blood was shed, then the one who killed that person must die in return in order to expiate that blood. Or the judgment of God would come on a society that doesn't care about the shedding of the blood of the innocent. And the avenger of blood, the family member, was the designated person who would uh, meet this out. Not out of revenge, but out of justice, and because there had to be an executioner. But now, suppose this person who had, fl- who had fled to a city of refuge, suppose he decides, I don't like being here, I want to be back home with my family. So he goes outside the city of refuge, and he's out on the road. If the avenger of blood catches him, the avenger of blood can kill him without penalty. Because the man should have known, or the woman should have known, stay in the city of refuge. That's what you've got to do. So, the avenger of blood could kill the killer under three conditions. Number one, he found him outside the city. Number two, if the court finds the individual guilty of premeditated murder, or guilty of having killed the person with a weapon that he should have known uh, was a mortal, uh, a lethal weapon, then the person is found guilty and the avenger of blood is the legally sanctioned executioner. And he kills the person. This is a big deal. This is not small potatoes. This is not a pleasant subject. It ends up with a pleasant ending. But meanwhile, it's pretty murky. But murder is a terrible thing. And we have to take it seriously. And they did. Again, as I said, it's not vengeance but it's justice. So we've seen the definition of the city of refuge. We've seen the definition of the avenger of blood. Let's talk about manslaughter. The person in here is called a manslayer. 
Manslaughter is when somebody kills a person and two things are true, or even one of these two things is true. Number one, the person had no history, well actually both things got to be true. He had no history of animosity towards the deceased. If they've long been enemies, then this casts the death of that person into the worst possible light. But if he had no history of animosity to the person, then it's likely that he did not murder him, because why would he bother murdering somebody that he had nothing against? So first, he had no history of animosity. In that case, he's most likely a man, uh, uh, guilty of manslaughter, not murder. And secondly, if he used an implement or something that was, uh, that was not a lethal weapon, or if something happened accidentally, for example, a man is, ha- is uh, using an axe and he's hammering, uh, he's cutting a tree down in the forest. And the axe handle flies off the axe. And the, handle, uh, the uh, axe head flies off the handle and it goes flying through the air and hits somebody in the neck and it kills him. Uh, he's not guilty of murder. This is purely an accident. But if the person used an implement uh, intentionally, that he should have known was a lethal weapon. Or if he used a means of killing someone, which was a lethal means, poison, or strangulation, then he's guilty of murder. So, but manslaughter, unpremeditated, no animosity, and not using a lethal weapon. Murder, our our next definition, we did cities of refuge, we did avenger of blood, we did manslaughter, now we do murder. A murderer is somebody who had animosity towards the individual who died and who used lethal means to bring, that, bring upon that person's death. In that case, then he's a murderer and he gets turned over to the avenger of blood. This brings us to the fourth thing. City of refuge, avenger of blood. Fifth thing, manslaughter, murder. What is execution? Execution is different from murder. Execution is different from manslaughter. Execution is the legally sanctioned termination of the life of someone who was found guilty of murder. And the person who did that was the avenger of blood. So, this contrasts between this practice that is outlined for us in Torah and the practice of other cultures of of that time. For example, in other cultures, all the family members that are deceased were responsible to even the score. Everyone. There was not a designated avenger of blood. They were all avengers of blood. Number two, they sought to even the score by killing any relative of the person who had killed their relative. They weren't just after the person who had committed the murder. They were after his children, his cousins, his father, his mother, anybody in the family. It was open season on anybody in that family. They could be killed by anyone in the other family. It's, that's pretty scary, isn't it? Thirdly, uh, in the other cultures, the courts had nothing to do with it. You see, in Jewish culture, the court had to rule as to whether the person was guilty of murder. But in other cultures, uh-uh-uh, your brother died, your whole family's out to take vengeance, you look for any member of their family and you kill them. So it was pretty brutal, and justice had very little to do with it. It was mostly revenge. And finally, 
In other cultures, this is interesting, cities of refuges were places where even premeditated murderers, even mass murderers, could flee to a city of refuge and stay there safe all the rest of their lives. So that the worst, the worst, I was going to say momsers, but that's not a nice word, so I won't say that. The worst individuals uh, in society, premeditated murderers, could flee to a city of refuge in other cultures and stay there and be safe. Even, even a, a runaway goat or a runaway calf or a runaway cow or a runaway horse, if it ended up in a city of refuge, the owners could not get it. So you can see that in the Torah we have a matter of justice and a matter of order. But in the other cultures it was not quite the same. So, what's the good news in all of this? That's what I want to look at with you right now. First of all, the question is, did... If, well, let me outline something. You're, a, uh, you're guilty of manslaughter. You have not killed somebody uh, uh, out of malice. You're not a murderer. You come up before the court. The court rules that you're not a murderer, but you're somebody who killed somebody without intending to murder them. Still you had to go and live in the city of refuge even after the trial. That's where you stayed. That's very interesting. Because the Jewish culture said, look, the death of somebody is a very serious thing. Even if you killed somebody without intending to do so, it's not like, you know, I just made a mistake. No, it's serious business. So if you had even accidentally, unintentionally killed somebody, you had to leave your family, leave your, 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 your uh, land inheritance. You had to leave uh, your, your land inheritance. You needed to leave your context, leave everybody you knew, and go live in some other city, and you would stay there. And that's where you had to live, isolated. It's kind of like being under house arrest. But you're not really in your own house. It's like being under house arrest in somebody else's house. It's not a nice thing. But the question is, did you have to stay there the rest of your life? No. That's where the good news comes in. You only had to stay there until the death of the high priest who was in office at that time. When that high priest died, everyone who was living in a city of refuge because they had been guilty of manslaughter was free to go home and get back to their normal life. Now, if you were very fortunate, and unfortunately you were guilty of manslaughter, and you were living in a city of refuge, and if the high priest dies a month later, you're free to go. For some people, though, the high priest outlived them, and they spent the rest of their life in the city of refuge. So you just never knew. What you need to see here is that it was the death of the high priest that atoned for the sin of killing somebody. This, killing somebody is the biggest crime of all, the biggest sin of all. And the death of the high priest atoned for that, for that. That's why when the high priest died, you were free to go because somebody had died for that sin. The high priest was seen as the substitute, as the vicarious atonement for the person guilty of the worst of all sins. The Talmud says, 
it is not the exile of the manslayer that expiates, but the death of the high priest. In other words, what is it that removes the stain of sin from the person who kills somebody? Is it just the fact that he goes into exile in a city of refuge? No. The Talmud says, no, 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 that's not it. What removes his sin is the death of the high priest. And um, Old Testament scholar, Rabbi Jacob Milgram, I met Rabbi Milgram 40 years ago. He's now gone. He lived a very long life, and he was uh, the head of the Jewish Studies Department at UC Berkeley, and he was uh, a world-class Old Testament scholar. His commentary on the book of Leviticus is the best thing done on that. He also wrote commentaries on other parts of the Bible, especially Torah. He wrote a commentary on Numbers, the book that we just read from. And here's what he says about this. As the high priest atones for Israel's sins through his ritual service in his lifetime, because that's what the high priest did. Every Yom Kippur, he went in and he offered blood and, and purged the sins of all Israel. Remember? Well, as he did that in his life, so he atones for homicide through his death. Now, why is this interesting to us as Messianic Jews? Because it foreshadows what Yeshua did for us. Who is your high priest? Yeshua is our great high priest. And through his death, we go free. It's pictured for us right there in the Torah. So those of you who are obliged Uh, and all of us are obliged, and some of us have opportunity to share the good news of Yeshua with other Jewish people, Uh, this is a very powerful thing to point to. It's very clear in the text that you say that just as the high priest died, when he died, he took away the sins even of the worst sin of murder. So we believe that our high priest, Yeshua, has died and taken away our sins. It's not a goyish idea. It's right there in the Torah. So, I'm reading from your outline. So I want to give some conclusions, some, uh, what do you come away with this? I want to talk about two wrongs and two rights. The first wrong is that it's wrong to think, well, Jesus paid it all, la, 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 la. You know, some people, I'm not talking about you, but it seems to me that some people think that sin is no big deal. After all, Jesus died, so forget about it. No, sin is a big deal. Even people who had committed unintentional murder, unintentional killing, they didn't mean to hurt anybody, they didn't mean to kill anybody, even those people had to spend perhaps the rest of their lives on ice because it's a serious thing. And sin is a serious thing. Somebody died because of your sins. Somebody died because of my sins. Sin is a serious thing. So it's wrong not to take sin seriously for those two reasons. Because um, even people who killed accidentally had to be on ice. And because the price of our forgiveness was the, the, the death of the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. He was not just the best guy who ever lived. Not just a really admirable human being. He was the eternal one who came from the bosom of the Father, who was there, who, who was with the Father before the world was made. Yeshua, Yeshua's identity does not start with creation. He, he existed before creation. And this one, 
came to earth to, to become a man to die for our sins. It's a big deal. So we should take sin seriously. Two wrongs. Now let's talk about two rights. It's right to realize that indeed there is no condemnation for those in Messiah Yeshua. That's good news. The high priest has died. You can go home. You can get back to your life. You don't have to be afraid. The avenger of blood, uh, 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 there's no condemnation. You're safe on the road. You're safe anywhere you go. There's no sword of Damocles hanging over your head. This is good news. The problem of sin and true guilt is solved. It's good news. Secondly, it is right for us to live a grateful kind of life 24-7, 168 hours a week, 52 weeks a year. We should live lives that are really expressions of gratitude. You know, we talk about ourselves being servants of God. I want you to know you are not servants of God. You are slaves of God. What is the difference between being a servant and being a slave? A servant can be a hireling who gets paid to do service. But a slave is owned. A slave belongs to his or her master. We are not servants. We are slaves. Why? Because we have been bought with a price. He paid for us. And I want to quote two passages from the Apostle Paul that underscore this. They're both from 1 Corinthians. As a matter of fact, I'm going to quote three. Two from 1 Corinthians and one from Romans. 1 Corinthians says, You were bought with a price. Therefore glorify God on your body and on your spirit, which are God's. You were bought with a price. You do not belong to yourself anymore. You belong to him who died for you and rose again. Therefore glorify your God in your body, in your actions, and in your spirit, in your inner life, which both belong to God. I know I sound stern. I'm not angry or stern. I'm just being serious. This speaks to me too. It's a big deal. But it's a cut above the pop religion that we're surrounded by, the kind of feel-good religion where Yeshua is treated like an app. You know? You know, you, you really need Yeshua. You, really ought to, you ought to really believe in Yeshua. It's really going to make your life a lot better. You know, it's kind of like you add it to your iPhone. No, 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 no. He's not an app. He's not a handy add-on. He's the Lord of all, and we are his servants. We're his slaves. And when you're a slave, there's only one question that's on your mind all the time. Only one question. What does the master want? That's the only question that a slave has. And that should be the only question in our life. What does he want of me? What does he want me to do? You are not your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And then in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says, You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. What does that mean? It means don't so commit your time to other priorities that you're unavailable to God. You understand that? Don't get so overcommitted that 
your responsibilities to God are out there on the, periphery, on the periphery somewhere, and you really wish you could get around to it, but really, you know, God, I'm busy. No, 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 no. You're not your own. Your time is not your own. Don't give your time away to trivial pursuits. Make sure that you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. One more passage. Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12 says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as living sacrifices, which is your reasonable or spiritual service of worship. Do not be conformed to this world. Don't let the world press you into its mold. Don't become a carbon copy of everything that is around us. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind, by the renewing of your attitudes and of your whole value system, so that you may test and prove what is the will of God. You may discern what it is. You learn by experience, situation by situation, what does it mean for me to honor God in this situation? That's only something you learn by applying yourself. You don't get that in an email from your rabbi. You get that by working it out, by practice, learning what it means to live like a slave of the one true and living God. And if we will live this way, it'll be good news for everybody. Okay? Shabbat Shalom.